0: The podcast will begin after this message.
1: What if you were in the middle of the most pivotal moment in a generation? A moment that would determine the future of technology, of trade, of the very climate of the planet. But you didn't realize it because you were distracted by political theater. I'm Louisa Savage. Join me on Global Translations, brought to you by Citi, a leading global bank we'll dive into the existential threat of climate change and how it's reshaping economic opportunity and geopolitics on the global stage.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. We are in the height of summer right now, so it's going to be a short episode this week. I'm not going to give you blah blah. We're just going to throw you straight into an interview with Megan Richards, who's had a career spanning more than three decades across a range of international institutions, and she ended up as the number two at the European Commission's digital department, and then went on to work in her last role before retiring a couple of months ago at the Commission's energy department. So we are going to cover a range of issues and delve into what makes Megan a little bit different, and you'll discover that when you listen to the interview right now. Joining me now on the podcast is Megan Richards, who is a longtime official at the European Commission, just retired. Congratulations. Thank you. And the reason I wanted to get you on is you were an oddity like me inside that system. So you were born in Canada. You're a Canadian. I was born in the citizen. United States. Oh, you were born in the US, like Boris Johnson.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and the former energy minister of France. But you were.
0: But you would generally identify as Canadian before you had come to Europe <laughs> and become a Greek, married a lovely Greek man, and. I, being an Australian, we had something in common in that we were coming from the colonies and going into a system where we were very unusual and we were outsiders. And so I wanted to talk a bit about your long career in the commission and how being that sort of outsider may have affected in a positive and a negative way how all of that happened. So maybe tell us a bit how you got to be in Europe and got to join in the EU system in the first place.
1: Yeah. So I won't go through every day of the last 30 years, we've been 30 years in Brussels. But the main reason we came to Brussels was because my husband, who's Greek, as you said, had spent 15 years in Canada. I had lived all over the world. I had worked for the UN, I had lived in the US. I worked for the Inter-American Development Bank. But the last 15 years he had been in Ottawa, in Canada and in Toronto and finishing his PhD, he just got fed up with the winters. So we started looking around at places to go. Athens was one possibility. Of course, Greece had relatively recently joined the European Union. And when he found a temporary job for three years in Brussels, we said, let's go. When we arrived, we had one child who was under two years old, and the other one turned two months the day we arrived. So Mon that's Dieu, we, As they exactly, say in French. Bon Dieu.
0: <laughs> and this is so an era when you had to wait weeks or months just to get a telephone connection when you turned off. Indeed. Brussels is not the Brussels we know today.
1: Absolutely. Brussels has transformed. And the other thing that was very interesting about when we arrived, at first I remember my husband turning on the television and said, Every channel has opera. This is Nirvana. <laughs> But also, Brussels has changed dramatically. It's absolutely true. When we first arrived, it was July 12th, 1989, before the Berlin Wall fell, uh, before the Soviet Union broke up. It was a very, very interesting time. And so we lived through all those changes, the expansion of the European Union, the changes to the European Union. I think that must have been one of the most interesting historical events of the last 50 years. And
0: we've only known each other in that decade of crisis that sort of hit us hard from the end of 2008 onwards. By that time, you were working with the Joint Research Council of the EU, and then we intersected at the digital department, DG Connect, Connect, as it later became. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in, in that world, because my understanding was you got thrown in the deep end of electrical engineering, which was not... Your specialty by any stretch of the imagination.
1: True. Well, I had been the director of resource management at the Joint Research Center, which was a wonderful job. Everyone hates being a resource uh, director. And in fact, one of my colleagues used to say a resource director's life should be counted like dog's years. So every year as a resource director should count as at least seven years, any other kind of...
0: And is that like a polite way of saying human resources?
1: It's human resources, it's budget, it's finance, it depends. But at the JRC, you have everything. You have more than 3,000 employees, you have five different sites. There was a lot of work relating to the sites themselves, security, because it manages nuclear facilities. And it was just a wonderful and very... Innovative and demanding job, but it was you. You really learn everything, so that was a great place to be a resource director. But I traveled a lot, and I still had two children at home at school, so it was a lot of pressure. So, when Fabio Colasanti, who was the director general at INSO at the time, called me and said, "I have a job for you in Brussels," I didn't leap at it exact in the very initial uh, moment. But since I Decided to go and take that, so I became director of general affairs, which covered legal issues. And was there audit. many affairs going on at that there time? There were many. In fact, my office said "director general affairs," which was <laughs> rather unfortunate. So when I left, I said, "You better change the sign on the door outside." <laughs> I would have done it the day I arrived at the office.
0: <laughs> now. One other thing that people will be interested to hear about is that Martin Selmayr was the spokesperson for that department indeed. when you arrived.
1: That's right. And he's and obviously- Reading Vivian Redding was the commissioner.
0: Indeed. Very forceful presences, both of them. And he's obviously been on a massive upward trajectory since sort of those days, 10 or 12 years ago. What was it like working with him? He's seen as such a Svengali figure and this all-powerful person. What's he actually like up close?
1: was not uh, objectionable at all. He was very dynamic. He was very intelligent. He had absolutely the right approach to communication. And he made sure that Vivian Redding was on the (laughs) front page of the paper everywhere. So that was the approach. And so in that sense, he was very active. The other thing that he was very influential in doing in that particular role was making sure that our communications unit, which was in my directorate, was one of the biggest and best and well-resourced. We had, I think, 35 people in that communications unit. Lots of facilities, TV, studio, everything. Oh, I remember that. About. So that this is where I need to yeah. let everyone
0: listening know that that was the team I joined.
1: Joined, yeah. You so I worked
0: joined. for Vivian Redding's replacement, Naley Cruz, and she decided to haul me over from the competition department. So I came as her baggage into this department. You
1: came as the speechwriter. I
0: did, and that was not... Well appreciated at first, (laughs) at the very least. I just sort of got ordered over into this team. And Mm. they were like, who is this alien that's landed from out of space? But it's true, they had their own TV studio in this one commissioned department. It was hilarious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they were very well resourced. And then, of course, when Martin went to become head of cabinet of Vivian Redding, he took a lot of people with him, including the former head of that unit, who's 16 weeks, who's now in mm-hmm. DG communication, and many other people then mm-hmm. moved along. So that's when Martin moved from being spokesperson to head of the cabinet of Mrs. ready mm-hmm.
0: And he's now got a new job in Austria. He has
1: a new job. Full yeah. communications. Indeed,
0: indeed. Back, back, to, communications. back to the specialty. Any, any advice for his new boss or for the Austrians <laughs> on how to handle him?
1: <laughs> Enjoy working with Martin.
0: Very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we've had the rise of big tech, like if we compare our days in that department versus now, I think the technology companies were seen as these very optimistic, innovative, innovative forces.
1: forces. absolutely. And it was
0: that the officials were really trying to drag the telecoms operators to kind of be as open-minded and outward-looking and entrepreneurial as the tech companies. Now it's all a bit rebalanced in a sense, where people see the downside of these new technologies. And many people think it's gotten a bit out of control. Is that something that you ever felt happening during your time at the department? Or is it something that you look back on and think like, oh, I wish I'd seen that coming?
1: I think it's the latter. In some ways, and it's not to say that we ignored the disadvantages of big tech. But I think the idea at the time was that these companies are so innovative, they are providing so many services to people. We had data protection rules in Europe already, as you know, it was only with the amendment and the update of the general data protection regulation that things became even stronger. And we thought that that would help protect people's data, that would help counterbalance any negative elements of the big tech companies. And so there was a real push to drive forward innovative new companies. And the idea also was that even though most of the big names were American, that European companies would also drive forward. And of course, there were many many SMEs, many cloud service providers, many new tech companies that were coming along in the trail of those big tech companies, and that was the idea that we would be able to push them forward too. Now, I think in retrospect, and also 10 years has passed since then as well, we've seen that has been just such an expansion of the tech companies first, with the unfortunate manipulation of many of them by nefarious forces, let's put it that way. It's not the tech companies themselves, I think, that are nefarious and nasty. It's very. It's they can't control what they, they created. Can't control, in lots of absolutely, ways. absolutely. I think that's exactly the problem. Now, who and how is going to control that? That is a real challenge.
0: And then you made a shift into the energy department. That's an interesting contrast because I, I'm guessing without knowing that, back in the day, oil and gas and other huge sort of energy operators weren't as regulated as they are now. I'm not saying it's the same trajectory as the tech companies, but I suppose that they have come to be more regulated and that they've come to understand that there can be a benefit to them being part of a sort of more controlled system rather than just the Wild West.
1: I mean, I think there was a fair amount of regulation in terms of how the markets work and how prices should be established and how fair trading should take ah, place. Because a lot of markets. them did
0: start as government operators,
1: I and suppose. And many of them different. were public entities. And so there are many, many similarities in the telecom industry and in the energy industry they're both network systems they both have internal markets they both trade they're trading commodities of a certain kind so they're obviously they're not the same but there are many similarities and so that was quite interesting also the thing in the energy field that I loved amongst the many things was that it was interesting scientifically it was interesting from an innovation point of view it was interesting from an internal market point of view and one of the most important and dramatic aspects is the transformation and evolution and revolution, in fact, in the energy sector over the last 10 years, which we saw in the internet. In the sense of going green? In the sense of going green. And in the sense of the rise of renewable energy, the dramatic expansion, the huge reduction in costs of renewable energy, and of course the challenges that we face for climate change. And so renewable energy, amongst many other, elements is one of the things that we really have to embrace even more to address climate change. So improving storage, improving the use and distribution of renewables, making sure that emissions are controlled, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that will help us. So this transformation has been really dramatic.
0: And I'm sensing then that makes you a bit of an optimist in that field. We've seen from the elections and all of the development of institutional and party programs since then, it, it does feel like climate action is going to get a push. At the same time, we saw in the digital field how difficult it was to mobilize people across all the different departments, all the different institutions. You basically have to drag them and it never happens as quickly as the as you the blueprint <laughs> sort of True. describes. Do you think it is really going to happen in this five-year window that we're finally going to properly go green in these sectors?
1: Well, I mean, we're not going to go green 100%. That's clear. There will still be room for petrochemicals. But what we have to do is move away from using them as a fuel and limit their use only to the bare necessities that we need for the petrochemicals industry, for the products that really only can come from petroleum products. So that will mean that the reduction will be quite dramatic in terms of use. And we will have to find new fuels and new ways of developing airline fuel, aircraft fuel, marine fuel, etc. And other different greener sources. And that doesn't mean that they will necessarily in the initial first stages be 100% renewable or 100% clean. But even by dramatically cutting emissions in those sectors, we will make Big changes. So just as an example, in the power sector, if you switch from coal to gas, you get a 50% reduction in CO2 emissions just by doing that. Now, it's not 100% carbon free, but at least you get that huge switch. And it's a relatively easy. Yeah, we very much seem to be
0: in the zone now where we have to try everything. Exactly. You know, I'm not a purist about these things where if you just aimed for only the greenest options, the delay in getting there would kind of. Eliminate the 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 benefit. Exactly.
1: You can't make the perfect be the enemy of the good. So this is clearly a, a progression that has to take place. And the other thing that I think is really important and has huge potential is the technological innovativeness of European industry. I mean, European wind industry is at the top of everyone. In the world. And we have really excellent wind energy. And companies. we have smarter
0: mobility systems than Absolutely. pretty much anywhere and else. And we're
1: digitalizing things. And so this intersection of digital and energy is also a very, very interesting area with huge potential as well.
0: I'd love to be able to get new radiators in my apartment where I could just
1: control them. A heat pump. You need a heat pump.
0: I don't know. I mean, I don't really get good advice from my energy company. So I'm terrible. Like I'm literally, I don't live any of my values when it comes to my own apartment, but it's having a 100-year-old building, I guess. And now I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you're retired to see if you have anything that, you know, you want to say where you are most proud or fond of from your time at the commission or any kind of lingering regret or disappointment as well, where now that you've got a bit of clear water between this long career and the institutions, what do you miss the most or wish was different?
1: Um, What do I miss the most? Well, I've only been retired for a month, not even. And I think one of the things that I miss was the wonderful camaraderie. I mean, the people really make... The work, very interesting and really super. I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but being able to work in such interesting and dynamic areas and really feeling that you could drive forward legislative change that would set high uh, goals, high Mm -hmm. standards, that's the word. Even the oil companies now are all talking about going green, using uh, new technologies, and they see the writing on the wall, so they know that they have to make changes as well.
0: Now, one final thing that we spoke about over lunch once was the impact of coming from successful multicultural societies, Canada and Australia, and how that affected our outlook or belief in sort of the EU as a set of institutions. And at least in my case, it makes me think, look, you can have these very successful cross-cultural organizations or systems working. And the EU is a version of it. It's not a single country with many cultures in it, but it's a network of countries with many cultures in it. And I think it's a very bumpy road. But it does make me believe that these institutions are a lot more resilient than people who don't follow them might believe. You know, they don't seem to work on paper, but I think they work in reality. reality. Is that a view you share or any compare and contrast you can do with Canada?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, Europe is an experiment, and so are Canada and Australia and the United States in some senses. And Europe, I think, has many similarities in the sense that this is a new approach to Europe. It is multicultural. It's multilingual. It's diverse. It's economically and financially diverse as well. It's politically diverse, uh, north, south, east, west, etc. And so I have seen, as you have seen, how such diverse and interesting countries can be successful and make progress actively and usefully. and so I think for Europe, this is also something that we should think positively about and use it to our best advantage.
0: true in the end there's definitely it's a long journey to it's get a there long I, that's journey. what I would also say about Australia at least but yeah it's it's tricky because we're obviously in a very rocky period, I would say at the moment but it, Feels like the EU is going to survive.
1: Yeah, I think the EU will survive. It has to survive. We have no option but to have it survive. Unless we're manipulated by nefarious uh, dealers.
0: Well, we're a positive podcast. We're not going to end on that note. We're going to end on survival. Megan Richards, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. It was a pleasure. That was Megan Richards, recently retired from the European Commission. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Gray, Weidong Lin, and Izzy Borshoff. We'll be back next week with a farewell episode from me because I am heading to the United States to work with Politico on the US election and a range of other global political issues.